There's a series of, of, of children's books that are called Look and Look Again. You guys ever heard of those before? We don't have one of those. We have one kind of like it. It's the same concept. Basically, the one we have anyways, every page has a nature scene. And the child has to, or, or adult, I mean, we, we like it. I like it too. But um, the child has to find all of the creatures on that page. So if it's an ocean scene, there might be three great whites and great white sharks and two humpback whales and 12 crabs and so forth. And the child is to look and keep looking until they discover all of these creatures. And it's a fun thing for them to do. My son loves the book that we have, used to love it, still kind of does. But there's also another point is to help sharpen their observation skills. They're, They're to look and then look again and then look again. Keep looking until you find all that is to be found on that page. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do in these verses. It's to look at Jesus and to look again. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I grew up in in church. I didn't always walk with Christ, but I grew up in church. And and it can be easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, we pretty much know pretty much all there is to know. But when we're talking about Christ, the eternal Son of God, we don't know all that we need to know. We need to look And we need to look again. We need to keep looking. In our text this morning, there's one command. We're being told to focus on Jesus, to look at him and to keep looking at him, to observe in order that we may understand and be changed in our hearts. We see this command in two words. The words are consider Jesus. You see that in verse 1? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. Consider him. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is really about, is to consider Christ. And of all the things in the universe, we could never look at Jesus too much. We could never get too much of him. I've never known someone that's just like, man, you just are a little too overboard on Jesus. Okay? He is inexhaustible in his grace and mercy and in his person and work, and we will never exhaust him for all eternity. We'll never grow bored of Jesus for all of eternity. So we are to consider Jesus. To consider doesn't mean to weigh your options. Like if we consider whether we're going to have Chinese or Mexican for lunch, you know, consider this or that. But to consider means to fix your, in this context, means to fix your attention in such a way that the significance of a thing is learned. It's to fix your attention on Christ. And what what do we need to do more? In In our day where there's so many distractions, so many distractions, I mean, I think all the distractions are creating more and more people with ADD, right? I mean, just like attention deficit disorder. I mean, we just like go from one thing to the next, and we need to slow down, and we need to fix our attention on Christ. Sam Storms put it this way. He said, to consider Jesus is not to think about him once in a while. It means to devote all your mental and spiritual energy to thinking and meditating and concentrating on who Jesus is. And what Jesus has done. It's to fixate your thoughts on Christ, to rivet your attention on Him alone, to be ruthlessly attentive to Him. And the reason we're told to do this, it is for the the liveliness and the strength of our faith. Right? Later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12 says, Let us 
lay aside every weight and sin which holds us back and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So it's for the strength and the liveliness of our faith. So why is the faith of so many professing Christians so dull and sleepy? And maybe some here today. It's because you have not sufficiently considered Christ. It's not, it's, it's not because you know so much about him and you need to move on to something better. It's because you don't know him nearly well enough. Robert Murray McShane, he was an old Scottish minister from the 1800s. He said this, he said, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus, and all things will appear little in your comparison with eternal. Will, will, will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the caves of the ocean? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive. And dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Or look and look again. The word consider that's being used here by the author of Hebrews, Jesus used this word different times, but one place he uses it in Luke chapter 12. It's where he says, consider the ravens. How they don't sow and they don't reap, right? They don't plant seeds in a garden and then tend the garden and, and then they get their food. They don't sow and reap. And yet God gives them their food. He's like, look at the ravens. Think about this. And then he says, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And yet Solomon in all of his beauty was never arrayed like any one of them. And then he's making a point. He says, if God so feeds and clothes the birds and the flowers of the field, will he not take care of you? So he says, consider these things. Consider these things. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the author uses this word consider when he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, let us, let's sit and think about this. How do we stir one another up to love and good works? And then he, and then he, he, he puts more weight on it when he says, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. In other words, the day of the return of Jesus Christ. So we are told to consider Jesus today. Consider Jesus, or look and look again at him. Isaac Newton, when he was asked the key to his understanding, he said this. He said, I always keep it before me, whatever it is. He's the guy that came up with the laws of motion, thermodynamics, and so forth. I keep it before me. I keep it before me until I, until I gain the understanding I'm looking for. I keep it before me. And we are to keep Christ before us. Keep him before our eyes. So, consider Jesus. Now, I find it interesting who the author is speaking to here. You guys notice who he's talking to? Who's he referring to or who's he speaking to? Who's his audience? We might assume that he's talking to people who are not Christians, but that's not the case. 
We might assume he would say, hey, non-Christians, consider Jesus. Look to him and be saved. And of course, we ought to say that to non-Christians. And if anyone's here and is not a Christian, I say, look to Jesus and be saved. Trust in him. Turn from your sin and rebellion and believe in him. But that's not who the author's speaking to. Verse 1 says this. It tells us who he's speaking to. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Holy brothers and those who share in a heavenly calling. I find these words, I don't know about you, but I find them encouraging and kind of shocking. For the, for the, uh, I find them encouraging because he's calling Christians holy brothers and sisters, okay? Not, not just men, but holy brothers and sisters. And he's saying that Christians are those who share in a heavenly calling, All right? So he's saying that Christians, those who have repented of their sins and the rebellion against God and trusted in Christ, they are called holy brothers, we need to sit and think about that just for a moment. Why are, why, are, why are we, through faith in Christ, called holy brothers? Is it because we've attained some level of super spirituality? No. It's because through, the, through faith in the work of Jesus, we are seen as holy in God's sight. Right? Through Christ's finished work, his, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, and our trust in him, our union with Jesus we are seen as holy in God's sight. And I praise God for that. I mean, Colossians says that we will be presented before God blameless in his sight. How? How could that possibly be? It's not by our own efforts. It's by the effort of Christ. But I also think it, when he refers to holy brothers, it's, it's not just those who are trusting in Jesus and have his righteousness clothing us, but it's also speaking of those who, through faith in Christ and the indwelling Spirit, are growing in practical godliness, in practical holiness. We are becoming, hopefully, if you are a Christian, you are, we are becoming more and more like Christ and, more and less and less like we used to be. More and more holy. It's not about being holier than thou and some snobby spiritual person, but it's becoming more and more like Christ as we see in the Gospels. So he's talking to holy brothers. If you're a believer, he's talking to you, holy brother and sister. But he also refers to them as those who who share in a heavenly calling. I love this description. Those who share in a calling from heaven and to heaven. It's a calling from heaven, from the God of heaven. If you believed in Christ, it's because the God of heaven has called you. He's called you from heaven. Now, you might be thinking, now, wait a second. I've never heard him call me. So, so don't think of like parting the clouds and, and the audible voice from heaven, Ashley Luce, come to me, okay? Don't think of that. That's silly. Um, no, that's not the kind of calling from heaven. Think rather of this internal, irresistible draw to Jesus. You remember that? You remember there was a time, maybe for the first time, when you were 
drawn to Christ. You saw your sin. You saw your need for a Savior. You saw what Christ had done on your behalf, and you were drawn to him. You, what were you doing? You were responding to the call of God when you trusted in him. It's a call from heaven. It's, it's a heavenly calling, but it's also a call to heaven, referring to our eternal destiny, which is in heaven. It's good for us to remember this. This is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, that this is not our home, right? This is not our eternal home. We want to be faithful as long as we live here. We want to be faithful to point people to Jesus and live a life that glorifies him. But we never want to assume that this, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Abraham was, was called a sojourner or an alien or a refugee on earth. And you and I are as well. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven with the Lord forever. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ or the heavenward call of God in Christ. Paul says, that's what I'm pressing on for. And then just a few verses later, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior. So this is deeply encouraging. I mean, we are are called holy brothers and sisters because of Christ's work, and we have this heavenly calling where the God of heaven has called us. We are on our way to be with him in heaven. But I also find this shocking when I think about who the author is speaking to. Here's what I mean. We might be tempted to think that holy brothers got this down. The Christian life, they got it by the tail, right? They've got it figured out. They've got the Christian life completely figured out. Do holy brothers and sisters really need to be told to to consider Jesus? Yes, they do. We do. Don't holy brothers and sisters just got it all figured out? No, they don't. We don't. We don't. We need to be reminded to consider Jesus. We get our eyes off of Christ on all kinds of other things all the time. We forget him. We overlook him. We neglect him. That's the, ver- that's the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 2. We drift from him. That's the other word that's used in Hebrews 2. We drift away from Jesus. No, we don't hate him. It's not like we run away from him, but we drift. We neglect. We forget. We get our eyes off him. We wander at times. And we, we need to be reminded to consider Jesus. Consider Christ. This text shows us three things to consider Jesus. I want to take the rest of our time to look at this. Three things to consider about Jesus. And then it tells us why this is supremely important. And it is supremely important. Namely, it's a life or death matter. Eternal life or death matter. So here's the three things we're told to consider. I'm I'm going to just say them and then we'll go through them individually. First, consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. Second, consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. And third, consider Jesus who is infinitely superior to Moses and in parenthesis, and every other hero we might have. So first, consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. 
That's, what, that's the first thing we're told to consider. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. This is the only place in all the Bible where Jesus is given the title apostle. The word apostle means to be sent on a mission. And when it's applied to Jesus here, it stresses his faithful accomplishment of the mission on which the Father sent him. Jesus is called the sent one or the apostle. The Father sent him on a mission. And Jesus came and carried it out. Jesus is the apostle of our confession. He was sent. He, came, he was sent to earth. And when he came to earth, he had this self-awareness about himself that he was sent on a mission from the Father. Jesus repeatedly describes himself as having been sent by the Father at least 10 times in the Gospel of John alone. Let me just give you a couple of of examples from John. Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it's not as though Jesus came and kind of begrudgingly or was forced against his desire to do the will of God, like, you will do my will, and just like, fine, I'll do it. No, 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 That's, he came willingly. He desired, he loved to do his Father's will. Listen to what he says in John 4. He says, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Christ came passionate about doing the work that he was sent to do. Jesus' own fulfillment and satisfaction was wrapped up in accomplishing the Father's purpose in sending him. I, just, I love this, this. I love that what we see here about Christ. We almost see the, the, this, you know, the Bible never uses the word Trinity, but there's lots of there's lots of hints and texts that show us the reality of the Trinity. And this is one of them, right? We see the eternal Son of God, who is God, sent by the Father. And we see this perfect harmony between the, this, in the sending of the Father and the coming of the Son to accomplish the Father's purpose and will. Verse 2 says that the apostle of our confession, Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful in all that he was sent to do. I just find it stunning to see the humble, loving obedience of Christ, the apostle of our confession, which led him to the cross to die for sinners. And so we need to consider Jesus, the apostle of our confession, Second, we need to consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. Although Jesus is only referred once as the apostle in the book of Hebrews, he is referred to as the high priest 12 times in the book of Hebrews. This is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to drill down more as we go through this book. So this morning, I just want to do kind of a, like a, a flyover at about 1,000 feet, okay, and just talk about what is, what's it mean that he's our high priest. Well, Jesus is the high priest of our confession, meaning or the high priest needed to do three things. 
All right, one, they needed to identify with the people. Okay, they needed to identify with people that they were serving. Two, they needed to make sacrifices for sin. And third, they needed to intercede for the people they represented to God. So first, they needed to identify with the people. And Jesus is a high priest who identifies with the people, with us. Here's how. He became human. He became a man. And not only that, but he lived the life that you and I live. He walked He walked on planet Earth for 30 years. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew what it was like to grow tired. He knew what it was like to be, um, to, to, to be slandered and so forth. He knew what it was like. He experienced it all. In fact, there's a word that's used to refer to Jesus. It says that he is sympathetic. Which doesn't mean he just looks at us and says, oh, you poor thing, like, oh, sympathy or something like that. No, the, the Greek word literally means to, to feel the same as. So think about what you're walking through right now. We got people here walking through hard, difficult things. Devastating things. And to think that the eternal Son of God is sympathetic. He's felt the same thing. He understands. He knows. He can come and help you because he so closely identifies with you. Hebrews 2.18 says he was made like us in every way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So he identifies with us. Second, the high priest must make sacrifices for sin. Well, Jesus made one final sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. Right? He, he offered up himself as a one-time sacrifice to take away sin forever. Isn't that good news? Maybe, maybe you're good. I, I just think that's really good news because I, I still sin. And if I think that I need to come and have Jesus you know, re-sacrifice or something like that, that sounds terrible. But no, he one sacrifice to take away sin. We saw in Hebrews 1.3 that it says, Jesus made purification for sins, and then he sat down. He sat down. High priests in the Old Testament, they never sat down. Their work never ended. They had more sacrifices to make the next day. The high priest had another sacrifice to make the following year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus made purification for sins by his one sacrifice, and he sat down. His work ended. So he has offered up himself for our sin, once for all to take away our sins forever. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now or ever, no condemnation. And a high priest must intercede for those they represent to God. Jesus makes intercession for his people. What is Jesus doing now? Right? He died, he rose, he walked with his disciples for 50 days, and then he ascended, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and what's he been doing since then? The Bible says he is our advocate at the Father's right hand. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. 
He, day and night, he, he's showing, he's, he's presenting to the Father his finished work for his people. He prays for you and I. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives or he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. And that's why he is able to save perfectly. He doesn't need any help from you or me or anyone else. He is able to save perfectly. Jesus is the high priest of our confession. Consider him this morning. Number three, or third, consider Jesus who is infinitely superior to Moses and every other hero. We might be like, what? what's, all this? what's this talk about Moses? What does this have to do with us? Well, n- not as much, perhaps, as it, as it did for the Jews that, that this was ori- originally written to, but it's important for us to think about this. Moses was the hero of the Jews. He was their hero. He was the greatest. I mean, he was... And for good reason. Moses was the guy who spoke face-to-face with God as a, as a friend speaks with a friend. He was the guy who, who, who ascended Mount Sinai and received from God the law and brought it down to the people. He was the guy who spoke to God for the people and spoke to the people for God. This was Moses. For the Jews that this was originally written to, Moses simply was the best. He was the best. He was the greatest. In fact, I think we could say, I think this text is actually pushing us to say this, that Moses was the apostle and high priest of the Old Testament. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Moses was was the the apostle and high high priest of of the Old Testament. He was the, the apostle, meaning he was the one sent. Right? Do you remember do you remember how the story of Moses starts? He's tending some sheep in this Midian desert and he sees this bush burning but it's not being consumed and he turns aside and God's, God begins to speak to him. And God says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and you're to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he, so he, you know, he kind of argued a little bit, but he did it. He was sent by God. And he also was the high priest of the Old Testament. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you might say, Wait a second. His brother Aaron was the high priest. And by title, that's true. But in terms of who really advocated with God for the people, who stood between God and the people, it was Moses, wasn't it? Remember when, when Moses came down with the tablets of stone that the law, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments was written on, and, and the people were having a party and dancing around this golden calf, And God was angry and was going to consume them in his wrath. And it was Moses who interceded for them and prayed that God would relent from his anger. And God heard him and relented from his anger. Moses Moses was the the high priest of the Old Testament. Moses was the greatest in the Jew, for the Jewish person at this time. But Jesus is superior to Moses, and not just a little superior. It's not like comparing two human beings 
and saying, well, this person's a little bit better than this person, or even this person's a lot better. It's not like saying, you know, Michael Jordan's a little bit better than LeBron James, or, or maybe a lot better. I don't know. But I mean, it's, not, it's not like saying that, okay? Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. And every other hero that people idolize. Jesus is infinitely superior. And our, se- our text says this in no uncertain terms. There's no comparison. Jesus is described as superior in three ways. I'm just going to breeze through these really fast, all right? Jesus is superior to Moses in his calling. Verses 3 and 4 say, Jesus is the builder of the house and everything else. And Moses is a creature made by Jesus. And Moses is part of the house that Jesus built. Moses is like a stone in the house. Jesus built the house. Number two, Jesus is superior in his person. Verses 5 and 6, it says, Moses was faithful in the house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over the house as a son. Moses was faithful in the house as a servant receiving orders from God. Jesus faithful over the house as a son, the one giving orders. And number three, Jesus is superior in the longevity of his ministry. That sounds kind of clunky. I don't know how else to say it. In the duration or longevity of his ministry. Again, verse 5 and 6, it says, Moses was faithful as a servant in the house, but his ministry is over. It's done. And, and, And not only that, but his ministry actually pointed forward to Christ's ministry. He was faithful. It says Jesus is faithful. Now, over God's house, as a son, his ministry continues forever. I just say it again, Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to do this. His ministry continues. Consider Jesus way better than Moses, infinitely better than Moses. And any and every other hero you might have, it's not even close. Whether it's an athlete or a musician or a writer or an evangelist, whatever it is, he is infinitely superior and he's infinitely superior to you. Maybe someone looks up to you as a hero. You need to know Jesus is the true hero. So why does all this matter? Why does it matter that we fix our attention on Christ? Does it matter? It does. It matters matters enormously. Here's why it matters. Our eternal salvation or lostness depends on it. And that's what God says in this passage. It's not just me. I'm not just trying to, I'm not just speaking hyperbolically to get your attention. That's what this passage says. Your eternal salvation depends on it. Is that important enough? I hope so. 
Look at the last sentence of our text, and I want you to feel the weight of this, and I want you especially to pay attention to the conditional clause, to the word if. Here's what it says. We are his house. In other words, we belong to him. We are part of his house, like Moses. We are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then some translations add, the ESV doesn't, but some translations add firm to the end. And I think that's implied here. This phrase is used almost, almost word for word in, in verse 8 or verse 14 of the same chapter, and it adds the word firm to the end. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope all the way to the end. We are his house if we persevere to the end. Continuance in faith is the surest sign of present salvation. Continuance of faith is the surest sign that right now we are actually saved. Our present salvation in Christ is proven authentic or fake based on our perseverance to the end. If you don't persevere to the end, it proves that, you are, that your present faith is not real. It's fake. It's pseudo. It's phony. Just in the last week or so, there was a person, if I said his name, lots of you would know. I don't know that everyone here would, hear, would have heard of him, but he, uh, he as, as a 23-year-old or something, wrote a book. He's a Christian, became a bestseller, sold over 2 million copies or something like that, uh, became a pastor of a mega church, and just in this last week, he hasn't been a pastor for a few years, but just in this last week, he's, he now is saying, the way that I used to define Christian, the way that Christians would define Christians, basically, I am not one anymore. And so this happens, where people appear to be Christian, and then they fall away. They fall away, they walk away, they don't continue. I remember one time being in a group of people. This was years ago. And, uh, and there was this one person who was um, in some pretty serious sin. And uh, somebody else in the group just, th- their encouragement was basically, well, do you remember the time you prayed the sinner's prayer? Instead of repent. And follow Jesus all the way to the end. Do you remember the time you prayed the sinner's prayer? As though we can just look back to a magical time. And then we're good to go no matter what we do or how we live. That's not the message of the book of Hebrews. This, this, this kind of... What's stated in verse 6 at the end of verse 6 is stated in slightly different ways throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews many times. 
We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope all the way to the end. I want to just linger over these words just for a few moments, okay? Notice it doesn't say believe to the end, although I think that's certainly true. We should believe to the end. Notice what it says. We are to hold fast. You know what it is to hold fast? To hold tightly to something? To hold on? To not let go? Last week, Alyssa and I had 16 kids out at Lake Panorama, and they were, they were riding around on the tube, and or I was pulling them on the tube, and there were, there were two boys in particular. When they got off, they were holding on so tight, their hands were killing them. It was Houston and Owen. You guys remember that? They were holding fast. We know what it's like to hold fast. Several years ago, I took a few of my kids camping in Colorado. Silas was like four or five. And when we were doing hikes, I was holding fast to his hand. He did not understand that gravity would take him from 100 feet down, you know, and he would be in trouble. Hold fast. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to our confidence. Now, not just confidence in some nebulous spiritual feeling or experience or some vague notion about God. But confidence in Christ specifically and what he has done, what he has accomplished, that he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Confidence in him. This word confidence, everywhere it's used in the book of Hebrews, it's always directing us to Jesus. Confidence in Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Because of Christ, because of Jesus, and that he is a perfect high priest, it says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. With what? Confidence. Confidence in the finished work of Jesus. Hold fast our confidence in Christ. This confidence produces courage and boldness in life. Uncertainty, however, breeds timidity and self-preservation. We need confidence in Christ. Hold fast to confidence. But what else? Hold fast to our boasting and our hope. Because of what Christ has done, once for all, our hope is absolutely secure. But one thing the book of Hebrews does is it doesn't, it doesn't lead us to mindlessly say, oh yeah, I know I'm going to heaven someday, but it points us there relentlessly that that is our hope. It's not for our best life now. It's not that everything works out just the way that we think it ought to now. Our Our hope is is eternity. It's in the future. It points us forward to the future. Hope biblically is not a wishful thinking sort of thing. It's a confident expectation of future good. And for Christians, we can have confident expectation of, of a good that is beyond what we can even fathom. The light... The path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter, it says in Proverbs. Only if we're looking to eternity. Because for some, 
the next year looks hard, right? Challenging. Hold fast our boasting and our hope. I love the word boasting there, don't you? It doesn't just say hold fast to your hope. It says boast about it. Which means, what do we boast about? Things we're proud of. Everyone who's got kids here, you know what it's like to boast in your kids, right? I mean, they embarrass us sometimes, of course, but I mean, we know what it's like to boast in our children. We, we boast and like, I, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And we tell other people about them and we boast in what we, what we prize. And so it says, hold fast to your confidence in Christ and your boasting in your hope. Hold fast to boasting. Now, we should teach our children not to boast, to not be boastful, right? But there are places in the Bible we are told it's okay to boast about certain things. 1 Corinthians one thirty says, boast in the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, I think, I boast only in the cross. Here we're told to boast in our hope. Hold fast. And quite frankly, I mean, is, is that even something we think about? We're, we're to be boasting in our hope. And so we need to stir one another up to even be thinking about these things from day to day. And how long are we to do this? How long are we to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope? All the way to the end. What a way to live. I mean, imagine if this said, we are his house if we, by our own effort, arrive at moral perfection. I mean, that would be such a weight that would bury every one of us. But it said, no, it doesn't say that. It says, hold fast to confidence in Jesus. That's good news. Hold fast to your boasting in your hope. That's good news. Let's wrap up here. I want to, everyone here fits into one of, one of four categories, and maybe some fit into multiple. There's some overlap, no doubt. If life seems to be pretty good right now, that's you. Life is good. Life is good right now. I'm thankful for that for you. But still, consider Jesus. Look to him more than your temporary blessings. In fact, look to him through them. Let, let your temporary blessings point you to him. Be careful that Jesus doesn't you know, kind of move into the background because life is pretty good. And he's still there. I mean, right? He's always with us, right? But he's kind of in the background. No, consider Jesus. See Jesus as the true blessing from which every other blessing comes so that he moves back into the foreground, so that he's always in the foreground. And every other blessing just kind of ends up moving into the background. And we're always boasting in Christ, even though life is going well and we appreciate the things that we get to enjoy. Charles Spurgeon said this, Take care that you rejoice in the Lord when you have other things to rejoice in. When he loads your table with good things and your cup is overflowing with blessing, rejoice in him more than in them. Because it's easy, isn't it, to rejoice in the things rather than the one that they've come from.
There's another group of people here, another category people here would fall into if, if, if the path before you looks hard and dark. Consider Jesus. I mean, really, that's who he's writing to here in Hebrews. He's writing to people that are facing an uncertain future of persecution and difficulty. Consider Jesus. If you feel like you're under a thousand-pound boulder or going through the toughest trial you could ever imagine, look to Christ. Look to the one who is, who is made like you in every single way and therefore can be perfectly sympathetic towards you. I think it's Psalm 34 that says, speaking of the Lord, and I think it's pointing to Christ because he fulfilled this prophecy. Or, anyways, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the brokenhearted. He's felt the same things you feel, and he is tender and ready to help you in every situation. So don't run to another helper. Don't run somewhere else. Run to the one who made you and became like you and knows you inside and out and can give you the best help on earth. Oh, and by the way, and he died for you. He loves you. The consistent testimony of Christians over the centuries is that the Lord was never more near than when walking in the valley of deep darkness and suffering. I remember reading a, uh, a um, who was it about? It was a biography of David Patton. He was a missionary to um, New Hebrides Islands, I think. I can't remember. And these were cannibals. Okay? And when he told his mission board that he wanted to go to these islands, they said, you're crazy. They're going to eat you. He said, I'm going. He went. And the first long stretch of time, he spent many nights hiding from these people who wanted to kill him up in a tree or up in trees. And he would hear them running around down below, yelling back and forth, you find him, in their native language, of course. And he said there the Lord was never more near than when he was up in that tree hiding for his life. There's another group of people here. Perhaps you are here today and you're caught in sin. You are caught in sin. Consider Jesus, the sin of anger and bitterness and jealousy, or unforgiveness, or some kind of sexual sin, or worldliness, or greed, or covetousness, or, or hatred, or gossip, or slander, so forth. I mean, you name it. You are caught in sin. You know it. You know you are. Consider Christ. Don't bury your sin under a pile of self-justifying bricks. Don't do it. You know what it's like to do that, don't you? So do I. We justify it. Well, yeah, but they did, you know, whatever. Don't do that. Consider Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to him right now. And don't think, don't think that you need to go and, and figure it out and then come to Jesus once you've gotten it figured out. You right now, in your struggle with your sin, Jesus is tenderly, 
merciful towards you. I don't think we think of Jesus that way about our sin now. But he is. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2 says, He is able to deal tenderly with those who are wayward. Wayward, what's that mean? Backslid, I mean, sinning, in sin. Run to him. I mean, don't get me wrong. He hates the sin. He hates the sin. He wants to destroy it because it's destroying you. But run to him. Run to him. He wants to free you from it. He wants to give you life. Run to him confident in his once-for-all sacrifice for sin and his present sympathy towards you. Let's consider Christ this morning. We need help to do this. This is just, just one final. We need help to do this. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we close this morning. And let's commit to help one another do this. Let's help each other. Let's, let's be constant pointers to Jesus for each other. Right? As when we get together for coffee or for Bible study or for prayer or whatever it is, or even as we're closing this morning and, and we're fellowshipping, let's constantly point each other to Christ, to consider him, to look, and to look again at him. Let's pray.